Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 and continuing to the end of the chapter. If you will, please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age." And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have just heard this Glorious passage in your presence just now. Mysterious as it is, we would ask that you would now come through your Holy Spirit and impart to us 
the truth that you would have us to know. We are at your mercy to know what it is that you would have us to hear from this, your word today. And we know that we are at your mercy for the ways in which this message needs to be portioned out to the various hearts and needs in this room right now. Father, we are putting ourselves in the palm of your hand. And we're asking you to come and to show us and to do with us and in us what it is that has been determined by your will. We believe it is good. And we believe your will is to be trusted. And so we ask now, come and meet us in it and teach us your truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was a friend of mine a handful of years ago now who through the generosity of a few people close to him was given a trip, a vacation, to be able to take off and go away for a couple of weeks and be restored. It was a beautiful, wonderful gift that was being given to him because he had been under so much stress, so much discouragement. He had passed through physical suffering. He had passed through some relational challenges. He had lost some relationships. There had been crisis after crisis, like waves upon a seashore that had just lapped up in his own heart. And he could tell that he was not healthy, not healthy emotionally, not healthy spiritually, He needed some time away. Maybe you recognize that feeling. What it's like to go through difficult seasons and just feel yourself to be on the edge of a a breakdown. He felt himself to be at that place. Some dear friends uh, paid for him to get away for a couple of weeks. He and his, his family. It was an incredible gift. But after he came back, settled back in after those two weeks, I remember uh, speaking to him about his time away and, oh, it was so great. We're so glad for the opportunity to get back and, and to get away and now to be able to come back. He said, but you know, after being away a couple of weeks, I realized that, boy, that was nice, but I've come back and nothing's changed. All the struggles and all the challenges that I went away to escape, I came back and they're, well, they're all still here. They didn't go anywhere when I went away for a little while. Maybe you know a situation like that where something really great, really nice has happened to you and you've gained a little relief from circumstances, but then you've come back to a situation and you realize, I've got to stare all this stuff in the face all over again. It hasn't gone anywhere. The situation hasn't changed. In many ways, that's Abram's story in the midst of Genesis chapter 15. He's just returned home from a remarkable victory. The Lord, through his powerful right hand, led Abram to victory over the four eastern kings. He rescued Lot, brought him back with all of the spoils. It was an incredible victory. It was an incredible show of God's power and his strength. He came home and, as we studied last week, received this victory dinner from this king of Salem by the name of Melchizedek. He's welcomed back as a king with a great feast. Remarkable, joyous occasion has just taken place for Abram. But now the dust has settled. Things have gotten back to normal. 
And he realizes that all of the God's promises that were extended to him back in Genesis chapter 12, by most scholars' estimation about 20 years ago, all of the promises for a son, all of the promises for a land, all of the promises of being a blessing to the nations remain unfulfilled. And so Abram finds himself in a position of continually waiting on God. Now, according to some reports, we, that is North Americans, spend somewhere in the range of 45 to 62 minutes a day waiting for things. We wait in lines. To purchase our groceries, we wait in lines at restaurants to be seated for a meal. We wait in traffic. Increasingly, we wait in traffic here in Franklin and in Nashville. And it's not just the stop signs and it's not just the traffic signals. It's all of the traffic. We wait for web pages to download. At Cornerstone this morning, you'll probably wait for the bathroom at some point in time. Monitor your coffee intake. A few years ago, NPR actually aired a wonderful little program, very interesting, about our waiting and our habits of, of waiting. And they estimated those 45 to 62 minutes a day over the course of a variety of different contexts and circumstances are leading Americans to spend somewhere in the range of three to four years of your life waiting. Waiting is hard. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the longer you wait, the harder it is. One of the reasons we don't like being put on hold when we call a local company or an establishment is we don't know if we're going to be on hold for 30 seconds or 30 minutes. We don't know how long it is that we're going to be waiting. And the longer we wait, the answer we get the more impatient we become. And at some point, we wait so long that we're ready to give up. We're ready to throw in the towel, ready to quit waiting, and we're beginning to wonder that what it is we're waiting on is never going to come. Maybe Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers were right. Waiting is the hardest part. Abraham is in that kind of place right here. He's 20 years in waiting for these promises, for a son, for a land. And he's now come to a place in the course of this narrative where he needs some assurances. He needs to know that this is really going to happen. And so as we look at this passage together, one of the things that's unique about it is there's all kinds of questions pouring out of the mouth of Abram. And I think that's important for us. And so we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning, and we're going to look at it around this theme of questions in order to try to get assurances. Questions in order to try to get assurances after waiting for so long for the things in which we're afraid will never come. And so the first thing we want to look at this morning is what does it mean or how do we do or how do we question God in a faithful way? What does it mean to question God in a faithful way? How do we question God in a faithful way? Because Abram in this passage is full of questions after 20 years of waiting. How do we do that? 
Can we do that? What does it mean to question God in a faithful way? Well, if you look with me at the opening of Genesis chapter 15, it starts with this beautiful word coming as a vision from God to Abram. The word is this, fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. What a great word from the Lord to begin in Genesis chapter 15. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield and your reward will be very great. I must assume by the context of this passage, God knew Abram needed to hear that. Because there's no context previous to this vision that would give us this word. And so he's coming to Abram. He says, I know you need to hear this word. Fear not, I am your shield and your reward will be very great. Now we've already seen, if you've been with us in this series, the fact that God has been Abram's shield. You remember how he was a shield when he went into Egypt and he lied to Pharaoh and in a sense was trying through his own manipulation to establish safety for himself and almost compromised his wife's purity and, and compromised, as it were, even the promise of a son through Sarai and God, through his gratefulness, shielded Abram from anything destructive happening. And didn't we see in the last chapter in Genesis chapter 14 as he goes after those eastern kings to rescue Lot and to bring him back home that God went before him and was his shield. He protected him and now he's brought him all the way back home. And so he says to Abram, Abram, fear not for I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. God has shown Abram that he is faithful, that he will protect him. But when Abram hears your reward will be very great, only one thing really pops up into his mind. And what pops into his mind is inheritance. It's quite clear because the way in which God speaks to Abram in this passage with assurance, Abram only comes back with concerns. He only responds with questions. He says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir, inheritance, the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, one of his servants. Behold, he says, verse 3, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Lord, you have said that my reward will be very great, but how is it that my reward will be very great when your promises have not been fulfilled? I have no son to pass down my inheritance to. He heard reward, and he began to thinking, are you sure? For when I begin to think about inheritance and passing down, it reminds me of what I don't have. And when it reminds me of what I don't have, I remember 20 years of waiting for what it is I've not yet received. And I think this is something that's really important and I think very, I think very personal and I think you'll, you'll find it um, true to your own experience. Sometimes, is it not true, that we read God's promises and they raise more questions than they do answers for us? Sometimes we read God's promises and they raise more questions in us than, than promises. I know many times I've looked at the scripture and I'll see glorious promises from God's word. And I'll think to myself, well, I'm not, I don't seem to be experiencing that. That raises all kinds of questions. You know, the Lord's going to protect his people as people seem like they're being hung out to dry or... Um, the, the Lord's going to take care of all of our needs, and we see that we're needy, and we don't have... And sometimes we'll hear God's promises, and rather than them bedding down our concerns with assurances, they raise questions all the more. We're wondering, how should we understand that? When you tell me that my reward's going to be very great, and you're my shield, and you haven't even fulfilled the promises that you gave me 20 years ago. 
But I think what you see in this passage, one of the things that's really important is those questions are raised. Abram's questioning of God in this passage does not come from a faithless, though it may come from a desperate place. It doesn't come from a faithless place. Why is Abram questioning God in this moment? He is questioning God because God has promised something that he has not yet received. That's really important for us to understand. He is questioning God, not God's faithlessness. He is questioning God in faith for what God has promised and not yet fulfilled. That's a completely different thing. There's a very big difference between coming to God in faith asking for answers than it is coming to God questioning his faithfulness. It's very different. His questions arise out of his embrace of God's promises. Because he has embraced God's promises, he has questions. <laughs> because he's believing God, he has questions. Not his faithlessness. That's really important, brothers and sisters in Christ. We understand that. Because sometimes we think every questioning of God or every doubt is coming from a place of faithlessness. That's not true. Now, that may be true. It may be true in your situation that your questionings of God and your doubts regarding God are rising out of a faithless place. But it's does not, it is not necessarily true. You need to look at your own heart and look at the promises of God and ask yourself, are the questions that right now sit in your heart, that are burning in your heart, that you're needing an answer from the Lord on, are they arising out of His promises that you don't yet see fulfilled? Or are they rising from a place where you are questioning His faithfulness and His character? Abram in this, in this situation is questioning God faithfully. He's questioning him in faith. He's doing exactly what Psalm 72 is doing. The psalmist in Psalm 72 says to God, God, why do you cast us off forever? <laughs> why is it you seem to constantly cast us off? Have you regard for your covenant? Uh, let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let not the, the poor and needy uh, not be able to praise you. Do not forget your promises. Arise and defend your cause. The pain of the psalmist in Psalm 72 is arising for the fact that he wants to see the glory of God's name in all of the earth. And he knows what God has promised. And as he looks out, he sees that God is mocked. He sees that promises are unfilled. And he pleads with the Lord based upon what he knows the Lord has promised to fulfill his covenant and fulfill his promises. True faith brings our struggles of faith to God for answers. True faith brings our struggles of faith to God for answers. I think it's really important for us to understand. The Lord wants you to wrestle with Him. With regards to the wrestlings of your own hearts regarding His promises and maybe their lack of fulfillment or expression in your life presently. He wants you to do that. And in the context of this passage, we see that really taking place. Listen, I think one of the things that was most assuring to me this week was, was rereading that section in Matthew chapter 11 where John the Baptist has a crisis of faith. Do you remember this? <laughs> he has this crisis of faith in Matthew chapter 11. He's about to be killed. He is, he is, he is in prison with Herod Antipas and uh, by the power of Herod Antipas and he's waiting for his execution and he's given his life to the Lord. 
And he's there just days away probably from his death, and he begins to go, you know, I need to make sure that Jesus is who he says he is. <laughs> Before I go through with this, <laughs> I just want to be certain. So he sends a band of his followers to Jesus, and they ask, him, they ask Jesus the question, are you really the one? That, you, that, that we are to be looking for. Are you the Messiah? And, and Jesus unfolds through the prophet Isaiah, right? This beautiful testimony of what the Messiah has come to do. And Jesus says, do you see the blind uh, gaining sight? Do, do you see the lame walking? Do, do, you, do you see the reverse of the curse taking place before you? I, I am the Messiah. I, I am the one. And it assures John. Now, you, you know what Jesus actually says in that very same passage? He says, John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever was born of women. And he was asking for assurances in a moment of his crisis. So just be encouraged. <laughs> be encouraged. That as you question the Lord, even as you look at his promises and you're wrestling with their fulfillment, he's calling you to come to him in your struggle of faith to gain the assurances that you need. All right? The first thing that we see in this passage is what does it mean and to really question God faithfully? I want you to see, secondly, how God answers faithful questioners. How God answers Faithful questioners. Now, it's so encouraging to me in this passage that God doesn't return Abram's question with a rolled eye or a sigh of disappointment. He doesn't say to him, hey, Abram, I've told you this. Quit asking me. He doesn't do any of that. I think we, we kind of expect that that's how God feels about us in that moment. But that's not what we see. The first thing that we see in this passage, which I think is so important for us to understand the love of God as displayed, is that God listens to his question and he answers. He listens to his question and he answers. And I, just, I want you to sit in that for just a second. He listens to his question and he answers. God cares about the questions that Abram has, and he, he wants to answer and bring comfort and assurances to Abram's heart. That's really critical that we understand an evidence of God's great love for us is he doesn't just shirk us off. He doesn't hush us up. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't attack us for asking the question, but he listens to us. And he answers us. And I want you to see two ways that he answers in this passage. The first thing he does is he repeats the promise that he's already given to Abram. And the second thing he does is he pictures the promise. Those are the two things he does. I want to start with the repeat the promise. Look at verse 4. He says, I will give you a son and he will be your heir. Now, if you just look at that, you think, okay, well, that's good to know. That's clear. That's, you know. But that's the same thing God has already said back in Genesis chapter 12. One of the ways in which God is constantly strengthening our faith is not by giving us new information, but by giving us the true information that we forget and need to be reminded of. Now, I want you to sit in Abram's shoes for just a second. He doesn't have the Old Testament written like you and me. It's not like when I say, you know, back in Genesis 12, it's like Abram could go back and look at Genesis 12 and, and read it. Have you ever had an experience where something remarkable has happened? 
and and you 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 reflect on it. It was a soul encouraging time, and maybe it was a maybe it was a worship service, maybe it was an event, a retreat that you went to, maybe it was a conversation you had with a mentor. It could be anything, but it was a spiritual moment where the Lord really met you and encouraged and strengthened your soul. And and you walk out of that meeting, or you walk out of that service, and you're so so encouraged. And then two years go by, three years go by, and you think back to that experience, and you ever have your mind do something like, was that real? No, did that really happen? Did I, did I, did I dream that? Was that, you know, am I, am I certain that that's the way it was said? Or is, that, is my memory just playing tricks on me? Am I just, am I sure that it happened? Like, have you ever had that experience? I want you to think of Abram as 20 years ago having this divine encounter with God where the promises of God are given. And I want you to think 20 years later when the promises are unfulfilled, he might be thinking, I don't know if I heard it right. I hope I'm remembering the facts of God's promises correctly. Maybe I've, maybe I, maybe there's some hyperbole in my memory with regards to what it is God said. And God says, "I will give you an heir. He will be of your own son." I mean, like you know, just you know, just in case you needed to hear it again, this is going to happen. And I want to speak clearly to you. It's really important that we honor the fact that we are a people, as Peter says, that need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We need to be clarified in what it is that God has promised. How many times do you lose your way each and every week, right? You get into something, anxiety, fear, worry takes over, question takes over, and then you come back to the Word or someone speaks to you and you go, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That absolutely is true. And then the next week, yeah. It's like, that's your every week. In many ways, the Christian life is this perpetual work of remembering what we know and don't really yet quite know. We're coming back to those truths. And that's what we see God being very faithful to repeat His promises to the Lord. But I want you to see the second thing He does. He also pictures the promise. He goes a little bit further to press it in to Abram's heart. Look at verse 5. God takes Abram outside under the night sky. He lifts up his eyes to the heaven and he tells him that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He pictures it for him. He says, I want you to, you know, Abram, you're a nomad out in the middle of this, this land that is not your own. Every night, more than likely, Abram walks out of his tents and he looks up. He doesn't have the, you know, the lights of Nashville to kind of blur out the beauty of the sky. It's a remarkable sky that he's able to sit under. And he says, I want every time, every time night falls on you, Every time darkness falls on you, I want you to look up in the sky and I want you to see the stars and I want you to remember that your progeny, your lineage is going to be more than you can even, even the stars in the sky. He's picturing for Abraham. He's really stirring up his imagination to help it stick a little bit further and a little bit deeper in his own soul with regards to God's promises. What's, what is so kind of God in this passage with regards to Abram is he doesn't just give him the facts of the promise. He gives him a picture by which the promise can be pressed further into his heart. How many times do we need something like that, our imagination stirred or a picture given so that we can go, yeah, that gets it. Yeah, that really gives it to me. God stoops in that way and he meets Abram right in the direction that he needs. And we were told there in verse 6, that Abram hears the repetitiveness of this promise and sees it pictured, and here's the language. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that tense in the Hebrew of believed God is not a belief of just a one-time event. It's a belief of a continuous and active and ongoing action of belief. It's that he believed God and he was going to continue to believe God and he will believe God. It's that this, this belief, this faith that Abram has that's trusting in God is a faith that will continue to exercise and will continue to need to be stirred up. We used the example a second ago of stirring up by way of reminder. I sometimes think of faith as a little bit like the, the pulp in your orange juice container in your refrigerator at home. Gets settled to the bottom during its, during its normal shelf life in your refrigerator. But before you get out to use it, you need to shake it up. It needs to be stirred up to get the life, as it were, into the whole of the thing. In a very real sense, our faith is like that. It will sometimes settle in a way where it becomes almost seemingly non-existent. As we're walking through life, we have to pause and get it stirred up. And there's a continuous action of stirring up our faith that's needed. A continual work of being dependent upon Him. Now what's remarkable is the way in which this text speaks of this faith. Because this is the first time in the Scriptures that we see such a clear connection between what later the Reformation would look at and what Paul would clearly speak of in Galatians and Romans as justification by faith alone. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, that we believe in Christ alone and through the belief in Christ alone, we are saved and are made righteous before Almighty God. That doctrine is seated right here in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed God and noticed it was counted or it was reckoned or charged to him as righteousness. And what that means is that as he believed in the promises of God and he trusted in the Lord... The Lord saw Abram and received Abram and accepted Abram as righteous. Not based on anything that Abram has done, but based upon faith alone in the God who is going to accomplish those promises. That's exactly the picture that we're going to get in the New Testament. And what we see here is a glimpse into that. That we are a people who are saved not because we've got it all together. Listen, if we look at this passage, does Abram have it all together? Is his faith perfect? Is everything that he does just so? No. That faith is a gift of God. That gift of God is exercised by trusting in God. And when his faith is washed away, here's what's beautiful. There's a rock underneath his faith that never moves. You see, the power of the gospel is not your grasp on Christ. The power of the gospel is Christ's grasp on you. And that's what we see in this passage is that God's got Abram even when Abram doesn't have God. He's the one that holds him in the palm of his hand. Now, as if Abram needed more encouragement, God in his kindness gives him more encouragement. Now, I love this because it's just so real to the situation. If you look at verse 8, here's Abram. I believe you. I believe it's counted as righteousness. We're told he's in the right position before the Lord. And what do we see? He says, I am the God who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees and I will give you this land. And what's the next thing we see from Abram? How can I be sure? Okay, it's like, well, wait, I thought, I thought we believed. It's like, I thought, I thought we had trusted. So what's so encouraging about this passage is that Abram looks so much like us. 
is as soon as we believe in this active agency of faith is there, we need more assurances. We need, we need to be stirred up. How will I know that I will possess it? And notice that the subject matter shifted a little bit. It was son. How will I know that I will have a son, an inheritor? Now the question is, how will I know that I will possess the land? It's the other part of the promise. How will I know that I will possess the land? And here's where God goes a little bit further in this passage. We said at the beginning that what we see in this passage is a picture of how to question God faithfully. What we also see in this passage is how God leads faithful questioners to the answers. But what we finally see in this passage is how God is actually the answer of all faithful questions. God himself is the answer. God is the answer. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in verses 9 to 21 in the passage, what we see is a picture of what's called a covenant. In the ancient Near East, it was very common for covenants to be made. A covenant between a king or a ruler or a suzerain, someone who was in authority or in power, would make a covenant with a vassal or a citizen or someone who was inferior. And that covenant usually included something like stipulations, obligations, things that you needed to do. And if you did what was needed to be done, you would receive certain rewards. You'd receive certain, certain blessings. And if you didn't do what needed to be done and what you agreed to be doing, certain penalties or, or punishments would ensue. Now, we've already noted this. You Just like Abram didn't have Genesis 12 just to go back to in reference in terms of God's promises at this time... Covenants were not typically made in, in, in writing. There might be a written component, but writing wasn't something that was just easy to come by in quite, quite the way that it is today. So instead of writing out a covenant, they often acted out a covenant. What we say in this passage is an acted out covenant, a very common ancient Near Eastern practice of covenant making. We see God calls on Abram to go get a heifer, go get a goat, Go get a ram, go get a turtle dove, and go get a pigeon. And he brings all of these animals before God. And God doesn't even tell him to cut them up into pieces. We don't even have that instruction here. Abram just goes and does it. It's likely because Abram knows what's going on. He's seen this before. This is a fairly common ancient Near Eastern tradition. He cuts up each of the animals, puts one half of the animal on this side, and puts one half of the animal on this side. And there they are lined up, the various animals cut in half, which would be a bloody mess there on the ground in the land of Canaan. And we're told there in verse 12 that Abram falls into a death-like sleep. It refers to a deep sleep. In fact, it's the same language that's used of Adam in Genesis chapter 2 at the creation of woman. When Adam goes into a sleep and God does divine surgery on him and takes out the rib and fashions woman, it's the same language here. It's only the second reference that we've seen thus far in the text. So this is not just, you know, this is not just, you know, taking a sleeping aid and, and getting some rest. This is a divine sleep. God has put him into a divine sleep. And we might even say it's a, it's a death-like sleep, a sleep that you cannot be wakened from except by God himself, that kind of sleep. Abram falls into that sleep, and while he's in that sleep, notice what God does in verses 13 to 16. God goes through and he tells Abram the future. While Abram is asleep, now there's probably some symbolism in this. What might be the symbolism? Well, Abram, after you sleep, 
after you die, which is his death is referenced in this passage, these are the things that are going to happen to the people, your progeny. They're going to be slaves for 400 years in, in Egypt, and then I'm going to bring them out with great possessions, and I'm going to lead them back into this land after 400 years, and then they will dwell before me. So he gives him, you know what he basically tells him? He tells him the whole story of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He tells him the whole, in three verses, he tells him the whole story of what's going to unfold. He says, I know you're interested in how you're going to possess the land. Well, let me start by putting you to sleep. Now, that's really important, isn't it? He's meaning to say, you'll never see this. The promises that I've made to you, you'll, you'll never see. I'm going to tell it to you as you sleep because you'll be asleep. You'll be in a deathly sleep, and here's what's going to unfold. My promises are faithful, but they're not on your time. They're going to unfold, and I'm going to bring my people in, and you're going to, you're, you're going to see the fulfillment of my promises in the ages in the ages that are to come. And he tells the history of the people of Israel. But he doesn't just do that. He gives him more assurance. Because Abram's question is, how will I know that I possess the land? Was well, not enough just to tell the history. How can I be sure that this is going to be accomplished? And God says, I will show you through a covenant. I will show you through a covenant. Those pieces that you set out there, the way in which an ancient Near Eastern culture would have walked through a covenant together is the vassal, the inferior, the one who's under authority, not the ruler, would walk through those pieces. And in walking through those pieces, the vassal, the inferior, the citizen, would be saying, I will uphold the covenant and I will do what I'm supposed to do faithfully. And if I don't, may it be done to me what is done to these animals. It's called a self-maledictory oath or an oath of curse upon oneself. It's a judgment. It's meant to be a visual portrayal that if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, you get the privilege to do this to me. Now, that was, all, that was very common in ancient Near Eastern cultures for covenants like this to be done. And, and failure for those covenants, one of the ways you reap justice was you went and gained your bloodshed. What's remarkable in this passage is that it uses the ancient Near Eastern custom, but it turns it all on its head. Because notice in the context of this passage, Abram is asleep. And what we see in verses 17 and following is the fact that a smoking pot and a flaming torch passes through the pieces. Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. A smoking pot and a flaming torch passes through the pieces. And maybe you're going like, what, what in the world is a smoking pot? You know, this bowl of chili and this, this fire stick. Is, is, you know, what in the world is it? Well, if you'll just remember, we rehearsed the history of Israel in the Exodus. Do you recall any pillar of clouds and flaming fire or any of those signs and wonders by which God will bring exodus to his people or redemption to his people? Well, of course you do. It's a foreshadowing of the exodus. 
that's here. God who is a consuming fire. The, the fire that will lead them by day and the, or the cloud that will lead them by day and the fire that will lead them by night. Here, this God, this smoking pot, this cloud, this glory cloud, and this fire, this presence of Almighty God, passes through the pieces, forging a covenant with Abram. So, so what is he saying? Why is this encouraging? Well, it's deeply encouraging. What God is saying to Abram in this passage is, my promises are so sure and they are so yes and amen the moment that I give them that I am bringing a self-maledictory oath upon me if I don't keep these promises. I will be torn apart if I don't keep these promises. But it's even deeper than that. The fact that Abram never walks through the pieces tells us that Abram is under no threat of curse because of this covenant. And because God is the only person who walks through the pieces, what God is saying is this. Not only can you trust that I will keep my end of the bargain, but if you don't keep your end of the bargain, I will receive your curse for you. I'm so committed to these promises. That if I don't keep the covenant, a curse will fall on me. But if you don't keep a covenant, the curse will fall on me too. I will take the curse for you no matter what. So none of these covenant promises, Abram, have anything to do with your faithfulness. Because I know on the front end that you're going to screw all of this up. And so when you are faithless, I will be faithful to my promises. And I will bring a self-maledictory oath, a curse upon myself. Well, it, doesn't, it doesn't take long to see that he did this faithfully through the pages of Scripture. All of the sacrificial system, isn't it this? All of the pictures of the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple. Isn't it this oath just being played out that you need a substitute to come in and to pay for your sins because you're never faithful to the covenant? And wasn't it true that years later, thousands of years later from this point, Jesus on the cross actually fulfilled the covenant promise that is given here in Genesis chapter 15 where God himself in human form became made like Abram and was utterly faithful. But because Abram had been unfaithful and all of God's people leading up to us sitting in this room right now have been unfaithful. And because of that, God had to keep his promise. And so what happened on the cross? He was torn in two like those animals. He was ripped limb from limb. He was destroyed. He was unmade, as it were. Undone for the sins of his people. In order that his promises would be faithful. His promises would be fulfilled. His promises would ultimately be complete. This is why Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3, He redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to you. You see the glory of what's going on here in Genesis chapter 15? It's meant to be so assuring to questioners 
as to whether God will be faithful to his promises. It's meant to be so assuring to give you comforts. When you look at your last week and you just think, oh, I'm getting, it seems like I'm getting worse. <laughs> it, seems, it seems like the wheels are coming off more. That the pivot of your heart must always be to the covenant promises that God's going to keep, not your faithlessness to the covenant. Only then will you find the comfort that God's intended for you to receive. And only then will you begin to experience the transformation He wants for you. Because doesn't your heart just melt at least a little bit? Ought to be a puddle on the floor. When you hear that God brought upon himself the curse for all of your unfaithfulness. Just so that he would be faithful in his love to you to draw him into your presence. Do you see when that kind of change begins to really get inside of you. You you don't become a person who says well just because God has done it all I don't have to do anything. We become a people because God has done it all I want to do everything in his name. That's the kind of people we become. Because I've been loved in this way I want to love in this way. Because God has been so faithful to his promises, I want to be faithful in obedience to his promises. We become a people who respond not just merely out of law, but we become a people who respond out of love. Do you see, that's what a Christian is. At the end of the day, a Christian is not someone who can parrot back some doctrines or recite an Apostles' Creed or know some basics. A Christian is someone who has fallen head over heels in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to serve Him all your days and is willing to do whatever it is that He calls you to do because you know that God has done everything that is needed to make you His own. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the the sons and daughters of Abram. This covenant promise, this walking through the pieces that God did, He did for you. And he accomplished it for you on the cross. The question that the text raises now, in response to his love and to his grace, how then should we live? How then should we live? Ponder that question. Consider the implications of that question. And through your heart singing in the gloriousness of this love, now give your life over to the commitments to go hard after a God who has loved you like this. Father in heaven, we would ask you that you would confirm these things to us right now and that our hearts would be so changed and transformed by your grace that we would find it a beautiful thing that our God would love us like this. Father, we are amazed and astonished at your grace. Truly, Lord, this is love. For greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. You've done that for us. Lord, encourage us now. And in that encouragement, release us into being the people you've called us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.